Well, I would invite you this morning, if you have them with you, to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Luke chapter 11, you can use your iPhone, your iPad, whatever device you have. I may be the only person that this has ever happened to. I, I don't think so, but it's possible. Let me tell you, I'll give you a little scenario. One evening, Charlene and I were going to run an evening. We left the house and uh, pulled, you know, and our truck went south on uh, Pleasant Hill Road, got over to Pleasant Hill Road. We went south to Jewel, took a left, and uh, took a, well, actually, I didn't get to Jewel Road because I'm a local, and I know that the shortcut is that you can veer off on Cottonwood and cut off the stop sign, which really isn't a shortcut, but it feels like it. And anyway, head east on Jewel to Gary, turn south on Gary. I'm headed down to that little uh, area there in Gary where nobody knows if it's a four-way stop or not. And we're going to veer off onto Ellis. And about that time we get there, Charlene goes, hey, aren't we going to Aldi? Where are you going? I had kicked into autopilot. I was taking her to work. Because that's the route we go to work. Have you ever done that? You're, you just kind of get so used to a routine. You just kind of, well, this is, oh, wait, where am I going? You got to turn around and go the other way. I, if I would have thought quick enough, I would have said something like taking the scenic route or uh, things like that. But no, I was, I was just on autopilot. Sometimes we get so used to a route, we just drive it without thinking. You know we can do that with Scripture. In fact, our passage today contains one of the most quoted, least thought about portions of Scripture, I believe, in the entire Bible. Now, we're looking at Luke's account today. There is a parallel count in Matthew chapter 6. We call these passages erroneously the Lord's Prayer. Why do I say erroneously? Because I don't believe Jesus ever prayed this prayer. Because it's not a prayer. It's a teaching. It's not a prayer at all. Uh, many of us have grown up in traditions where we can quote the Lord's Prayer verbatim. And we can quote it kind of monotone. And we can do it at a fairly good clip. Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us a day of daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Time the glory, glory, glory forever, ever. Amen. Boom, done, prayed, done. I've said my prayer. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to look at it more deeply because I think every passage in Scripture we need to think about. Think about not only what we're saying, think about what Jesus is teaching us. There is much more going on here whether we use Matthew's account or Luke's, much more going on about a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, and with Jesus than just words we can say because they're familiar. So we begin in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. It's very interesting. First thing that stands out for me in this particular section is simply this. They were watching Jesus pray. They were there when Jesus prayed. I would put it this way. Jesus teaches us by a, the example of his own prayer life. Jesus 
in a sense, modeled prayer for them simply by the fact that he prayed in their presence. And in fact, if you're counting in the book of Luke, we're in chapter 11. This is the sixth time in Luke that Luke mentions Jesus praying. He prayed at his baptism in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. After a very, very busy day in ministry, Luke tells us in chapter 5 and verse 16, he got away to a quiet place to pray. He prayed after a very busy day. Before he made the most significant earthly decision of his ministry, the decision to to pick 12 individuals that would be called his apostles, he spent all night in prayer in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. After this amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which is 5,000 men, when you add women and children and all, it, it, it could balloon up to more like Ten to 15,000. But after that amazing miracle, in Luke chapter 9 and 18, he went and prayed. And we just saw it a couple weeks ago at the Mount of Transfiguration. What was Jesus doing? He was praying. So, and now here again, we find him praying in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And as we go along in Luke, we're going to find so many other instances where Jesus praise significant times for Jesus prayer was more than a rote memorization of some pre-written words prayer was an expression of a relationship as he related to and communicated to his father in heaven it's as if prayer grounded him It was in prayer that he was guided. It was in prayer that he was comforted. So it stands to reason that he framed his earthly ministry in prayer. And the disciples wanted to learn. You see, they knew that John had taught his disciples how to pray. And they knew that they're a kind of a unique community formed around the person of Jesus. And so they wanted to learn as well. And I would just say this. This is a freebie. Mom and dad, if you want to teach your children how to pray, let them see and hear you pray. Let them hear you talk to God. You'll be following the pattern of Jesus. So they say, Lord, teach us to pray. So to teach them, Jesus gives them a model. He gives them a framework. Now, I would tell you this, if you've memorized the Lord's Prayer as it's called in Matthew's, Matthew 6, which is the one we tend to gravitate to, it has more of a liturgical feel to it, that's okay. I'm never going to tell you memorizing Scripture is wrong. I will never say that. But I would challenge you to make sure you know what you've memorized, to know what Jesus is really teaching here. So that your discipline of prayer is not limited to just a few verses. So what Jesus does is not only he uses the example of his own prayer life, Jesus teaches us a working model for prayer. And it begins, he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Matthew's version says, our Father. And that tells me something right there about prayer. The first thing about this model that Jesus gave. Prayer is a personal and a corporate relationship. You see, the word you there is not singular. It's plural. It's when you pray, y'all pray. It's plural. 
In other words, Jesus is not only talking about the individuals, he's talking about the group. You know, as Americans, we lean toward making everything individual. That's who we are. We're rugged individualists. Pull myself up by my own bootstraps. But God wants us to think more corporately as well at times. There's a strong corporate mindset to these instructions. So while it can be applied personally, and we'll do that today, it should also be applied to the broader body of Christ. We need to be thinking more and more, especially as we're longing more and more to get together, thinking more and more about how we could get together in, and pray as a group. I'll say this as gently and straightforwardly as I can. I find it very sad that in many churches, including this one, that the least attended event we've ever done has consistently been corporate prayer. That's sad. We need to make that a premium. I need to make that a premium. I need to call more prayer times, but I'll call them and I'll show up. I want to encourage you to be here too because prayer is part of who we are. It's our communication. Now Jesus begins with the word father. Uh, the word uh, father is, is what begins this relational aspect in this model. Now we, we know that Luke is writing in, in Greek. That was the language of the day. It was the kind of the trade language of the day. We believe Jesus, being from Galilee, probably spoke in Aramaic. And the word he would have used would be the word Abba. Uh, it, Abba is a term of endearment. Uh, Formally, it's father. Informally, while it doesn't exactly correspond with this, the best word that we have in English that would kind of fit is dad or, or daddy. You know, there are only three people on planet Earth who call me dad or daddy. Uh, even my in-laws don't. My, they, they call me Scott. I tell you, we got to build that respect. But anyway, my kids, my three kids, I was there when all three of them were born. I was there just, you know, coaching my wife. You know, she did all the work I coached. That's the way it works. I, I was there. Uh, Charlene reared them into adulthood, and I helped a little bit. Uh, but it's... The reality is I have this personal relationship with them. When my kids call, which is rare, but they do, you know, it shows up on my phone, it's one of them, that call gets answered. If I'm in the middle of talking to you, can you excuse me for just a minute? I have to take this. It's one of my kids. You know, they're that important to me. Well, I might let it go to voicemail. But, you know, my, they're that important to me. And, and Jesus said, when you pray, begin with Father. Begin with that personal relationship. You have a heavenly Father, and because of the death of Christ which, that you've put your faith in, you have a relationship with Him. And that relationship is only available through what we've already celebrated here. God, our loving heavenly Father, did for us what parents do, he sacrificed for us. He sacrificed his son for us. So when we approach God in prayer, we come to one who knows us and wants us to know him. Father, hallowed be your name. It's not just a personal relationship. It's a deeply respectful relationship. 
hallowed be your name. A literal way we can translate is your name is kept holy. Holy means set apart. And so we, we've set part God apart. He's, we have this personal relationship, but this is deeply respectful relationship. We, we don't come to God because we're like buddy-buddy. I mean, it's great to say I'm a friend of Jesus because Jesus calls us his friend. We get that. But there is also that deep respect that I'm approaching the, the greatest being ever, the self-existent, eternal infinite God who's holy and righteous and just and I do not approach him just willy-nilly I approach him with deep respect and so there's this balance of this personal relationship but deeply respectful when I was not new as a youth pastor but still serving as a youth pastor I one night remember having a conversation with our senior pastor's wife. Now, you need to know something. In our church back in Indiana, Pastor French and Mrs. French was their names. Most of us thought that's what was on their check. You know, that it was just Pastor French and Mrs. French. Nobody called them anything else but Pastor French and Mrs. French. On this night, we were talking, and at one point I said something about, I said, you know, addressed her and said Mrs. French, and she stopped me. Scott, you've been on staff here at the church for a couple years now. That makes us ministry colleagues. You're my colleague. As a result, you need to know that I do have a name. My name is Arloine. And from now on, I would like you to address me as Arloine. Yes, Mrs. French. <laughs> For me, it was just, and, and by the way, I could never call Pastor French by his first name until even the day he went to glory. Uh, I know what it was, but it was for me, it was always Pastor French. I had a deep respect for these servants, but, and I had a good relationship with them. It was that balance of a personal relationship and a deep respect. And it should be that way in our addressing God. Yes, he's the loving, caring, gracious, kind, forgiving, Abba, Father. And I come to him because the way is open. And he said, you can come boldly to my throne. You don't have to wait. You can just come to me. But I also come to him as the holy and righteous and just God. And we approach him that way. We approach him personally, but deeply respectful. Our Father, who art in heaven, or our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Another aspect of this relationship is it's a submissive relationship. When I pray your kingdom come, I, I'm in a sense inviting God to do all that he says he would do, but on a personal sense, or even as a local church sense, I'm saying, God, I want you to reign in my life. It's your kingdom. I want you to reign in my church because it's your kingdom. It's not my kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom pervade this place. Your kingdom pervade my life. I'm letting God know that when I come to him and I, I am submitting to him and I am giving him complete charge over my life. 
I'm letting him know that I am submitting myself to his will, his way, his guidance. I don't call the shots. I follow him. I follow his will. Your kingdom come, which leads to another reality in this prayer relationship. Give us each day our daily bread. It is a dependent relationship. Give us each day our daily bread. In the ancient world, you didn't have a pantry where you could store your dry goods. You know, I've been taught over the years to always make sure we have a backup. So, you know, we have uh, like the flour and then we have a backup of the flour, you know. And I'm telling you, if you forget, if you use the, if you open the backup and you don't write it down on the grocery list so that we can get the other backup, it's just not a good scene. They didn't have that. They didn't have refrigeration. You baked your bread for the day. You baked your bread for that day. You baked only what you needed for that day because you had no way to store it. Another thing in the ancient world, the typical common laborer was hired on a daily basis. There's actually a parable that Jesus uses about that where there's some people working and uh, or there's a guy that needed some people to work in his field. He hired each one on a daily basis. So every day you went down to the square and you looked for work on a daily basis. And so when you say, give us each day our daily bread, you're saying, God, I am depending on you for what I need today. I am dependent upon you for what I need on this day. Now, I know we could go off and say, well, yeah, but, you know, God didn't go to college. I went to college and got my degree. Trust me, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he was there with you all the way, sometimes kind of like this, but he was with you all the way. He gave you the ability to learn. He gave you the ability to earn. He gives you the ability to get a job, to hold a job. God provides for your daily bread every day still. And so this is a dependent relationship. I am expressing my dependency on, upon him. And so when I come to him in prayer, it should be when that deeply personal, respectful submission, dependence. Do you ever just thank God for, all, for what he's given you? You thank him for the way that he's taken care of you? Thank you for the way that he allows you sometimes to bless others? It's a dependent relationship. But it's also a reciprocal relationship. What I mean is this. Notice what he says. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. When I ask God to forgive me of my sins, not just that moment that I came into a faith relationship with him, but also daily when I do something wrong, and as 1 John 1, 9 says, I confess my sins and he's faithful to forgive me. If I am willing, if I am depending on God to forgive me of my sins, I need to be someone who forgives others. That's the whole principle here. Luke's Luke's, uh, translation here, the translation of Luke's word leaves nobody out. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That's stated very positively. And in Matthew's account, it ends with this warning. 
that, that if you're not willing to forgive somebody else, how can your Heavenly Father forgive your sins? The idea is this. It's wrong to ask God for what I will not give somebody else. If I'm going to ask God for forgiveness and believe that he'll forgive me, I need to be forgiving. Now we could go off and I could tell you all about my definition of forgiveness. I'll make it really short. Forgiveness doesn't mean it was okay. It doesn't mean I wasn't hurt. It doesn't mean I wasn't sinned against. Forgiveness is simply releasing my right of vengeance to God. I'm going to release you and I will let God deal with you. I'm not going to let your sin control my life any longer. But if I am not willing to do that, why would I expect, it's just wrong to say, well, God, you forgive me, but I'm not forgiving them. You can't even love them. I bet you you don't even like them very much. No, God says he, he loves the world. It's a reciprocal relationship. So in my prayer life, in my communicating with God, I share in that forgiveness. But finally, it's also a protective relationship. And lead us not into temptation. Now we know from James 1.13, God does not tempt us, nor does he lead us into temptation. So why would this be here? Well, I think a better way of understanding that is asking God to protect us from temptation. Someone has put it in a way that makes a lot of sense to me. They've said this phrase has the force of, do not cause or allow us to succumb to temptation. It's a cry to God to protect us as he leads us. Now, there's your model right there. Now, with every model, you kind of, okay, how does it work? How, how, how does this play out? How would this work in, in real life? And, and interestingly enough, Jesus carries on in Luke's version here. So he doesn't leave us to, to kind of put the pieces together. He says, now let me show you how it works. And so he tells a parable and then makes a couple of points after it. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of the friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What Jesus does in these passages is now he teaches us the mindset of prayer. And, and so to order, if we've got to understand this parable, we've got to understand a couple of things. Uh, as we've already stated, in the ancient world, you didn't have a pantry. You made the bread that you needed. And, and so if you ran out of bread at the end of that day, you're done. You're out. 
Now, add to that that uh, there was a premium on hospitality. Hospitality wasn't just a nice thing. It was a duty. It was a duty when, you, when someone came in to show them hospitality, to, to give them their best, to uh, make sure that they were taken care of. And so we have this situation. Usually people didn't travel at night in the ancient world. It wasn't safe to travel at night. But somehow this person has a friend who shows up at midnight. Surprise! You know, they show up at, at midnight and, and you just don't say, hey, come on in, you know, bunk over there, we'll have breakfast in the morning. No, they've traveled, they're tired, they're weary. Your house is up, you're taken care of, you're, you're making sure, and you look and you go, <gasps> we're out of bread. We didn't know they were coming. And so this guy runs over to his friend's house. Now, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the common person had a one-room house. There may have been a second room for a guest room, but typically it was a one-room house. And in fact, at night, they would bring in, everybody would sleep in this side of the room, and they would actually, if they had a, a, maybe a cow or a sheep or a donkey, they would bring them in, and they would be on this side of the room. And everybody was together. And so when this guy comes to his friend's house, and he wakes him up, he doesn't pound on the door, because he's trying not to wake the kids, because you and I all know if you wake up the kids, it's over for the rest of the night. So he calls out to his friend. And he says, my friend has come and I'm out of bread. Do you have three loaves? Now, how did he know he had three loaves? I don't know. It's a parable. But he says, do you have three loaves that you can lend me? And the guy calls back and goes, dude, we're in bed. I am not going to get up and tiptoe over the kids and step on one. And wake up the entire house because you didn't plan. Don't bother me. The door's locked. But Jesus says, but he does. He gets up. Not because the friend maybe just keeps asking and asking. Notice what he says. And it's a very difficult translation. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, in other words, you know what, we're friends, but maybe not that much of a friend. But the fact that you had the boldness, the, the word here is shameless audacity, because you had the boldness to come at midnight and to ask, because you believed our friendship was that, yeah, I, I'll, I'll take care, I'll get it. You know, we'll hand it through the window, we won't wake up the kids. I'll give you what you need. The point of this parable is not that if we just bug God enough, he'll be like a grumpy neighbor who will take care of what we need. I don't think that's the point at all. The, the point of this is, is not somehow that, that God is just kind of harumphy giving us stuff. The, the motive for the neighbor acting is the boldness, the persistence of his friend. Warren Wiersbe says this, persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind. You can't change God's mind. Persistence in prayer is not an attempt to change God's mind, but to get ourselves to the point where we can trust him with the answer. The reality is when we put our faith in the finished work of Christ, we can boldly and confidently 
come before the holy and righteous God. There's not a wrong time to come to God. There's not an inconvenient time to come to God. And just like this neighbor, this friend had the boldness to go to his neighbor at midnight to try to get some extra bread. God says, you can, Jesus is saying, you have that same opportunity. You can be bold in coming to God because he is there. He is there and, and we can trust him that he will hear and respond in the right way according to his character. We can have confidence as we approach God. That's the first mindset we need to have. I can take anything to God. There is nothing too big and nothing too small to take to God in prayer. Now, to amplify that, Jesus gives three commands. He says, so I say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So Jesus gives three commands. Ask, seek, knock. Now, the way these commands are, are, are presented, they're in the present tense, which could actually be present tense commands, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. The communication we have with the Father through prayer is to be a continual reality. We are to be in a mindset of prayer. We are to know that God is always there. And that's why I say it's not wise to limit the sum total of my prayer life to a few verses in Matthew 6 and never talk to God in any other way. Imagine this for a moment. In just a little while, in another, about a month, we will celebrate our anniversary. I tend to call it National Charlene Patience Day. Uh, and we will celebrate our anniversary. But imagine on May 24th, 1981, as we're driving down Interstate 55, headed off, we got married the day before, we're in this wedded bliss, and I decide that maybe... We have already had enough communication. We're, we're done. That, you know, communication, it's kind of overrated anyway. I mean, every marriage book talks about it. And, and so Charlene asked me a question, uh, maybe about how I'm feeling or something. And I look to her and I simply say, I, Scott, take you, Charlene, to be my wedded wife, to heaven to hold from this day forward, in sickness and in health. For richer or poorer, to love and to cherish until we are separated by death. And what if from that point on, for the next 40 years, they won't last that long because the death would come sooner, but for the last next 40 years, that's the only way I talk to Charlene. Hey, honey, what do you want for dinner? I, Scott, take you, Charlene. And that's what we do so much with this prayer. We don't think about what am I saying? We just say, our Father who art in heaven. Yeah, I know all that. I wrote it. But where are you at? Let's have a relationship. Let's have a conversation. Communication is a core foundational reality in marriage. And Jesus is saying, as you confidently approach the Father, boldly coming to Him as you go to your friend at midnight to say, I need bread, then you also ought to stay in continual communication with the Father 
Talk to him. Tell him what's going on. Let him know. Don't just assume, yeah, I know you're God, you know everything. He wants you to talk with him. You see, if we ask once, seek once, knock once, and walk away, we probably won't see an answer because we've stopped looking for it. But if we're in communication, bringing our needs and our requests to God, we position ourselves for God to work in us and through us and to even change us to show us a better way. I think one of the reasons that that great prayer passage in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. In other words, tell him everything. And then he follows that up by saying, and God will give you all the things you want. No, he says, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. That is so important because when we keep asking and we keep seeking and we keep knocking, when we receive, we're going to be fine, fine and we're going to show, be shown the way that God wants for us. And the thing that he does first is says, don't worry, I got it, hang with me, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, keep trusting, I've got you. And that brings us to the third thing. If we are going to have a mindset of prayer, it's going to be a confident, continual communication, trusting the character of God. Jesus finishes this teaching with an illustration. He reminds his hearers that no dad, who's even remotely a decent dad, would do anything on purpose to harm his children. So his children come and they ask him for a good thing. A fish is a good thing. An egg is a good thing. It's food. It's nutrition. Uh, food, necessity, staples. We need these things. No child that asks his dad for a fish or a hard-boiled egg is going to get a rattlesnake or a scorpion. That's a quick call to Child Protective Services, I'm going to tell you. In fact, it is so ridiculous, it's out of the question. And Jesus said, I know you human fathers, you're flawed. We all are. We all have a sin nature. We often think of ourselves first. But we know how to give our children what they need. And I know we need to, and I'm going to say this for those of us children, adult and otherwise, we have to work very hard to not project the flaws of our fathers onto God. Because that is bringing God down to this level. God is a righteous, just, loving, heavenly Father. And our fathers sometimes made big mistakes. But Jesus says, if you, being flawed, sinful fathers, if, if you know how to give your kids what they need, just think how much God can give you what you need. And he, and he finishes it by saying, how much will your heaven, more will your Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So are we talking about salvation here? Yes. Are we talking about that grand day in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down and filled the disciples and they spoke in all these languages? Yeah, we're talking about that too. But we're also talking about the fact that on a day-in, day-out basis, we have access to, because He indwells us, the Holy Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, and we have all the eternal resources available to us at all times that we can live our lives on a daily basis. 
In fact, twice Paul will say the same power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you. So when we come to God in prayer, we are actually coming to Him and inviting Him to reign in us and to give us all that we need for this moment, even if it means to wait and be patient because we don't see the answer yet. As we confidently approach God, we need to stay in continual communication with Him as we daily learn to trust His character. I want to I want to take the time to give you two quick stories of how I've seen God work. One of them goes all the way back to May of 1982. I was a brand new first-year seminary student, and we had a baby. Uh, and Charlene had, you, you know, well, she was going back to work that day. I had one thing to do that day. I had to study for my theology final. Eh, I got this. I, you know, you're fine. I only have 75 notes of class, of verbatim pages of notes and a couple books to remember. I'll be fine because the baby just sleeps, right? She's not even a month old. She eats and she sleeps. She eats and she sleeps. I got this, honey. We're going to be fine. So she goes to work. And oh, did I mention this exam was only worth 40% of my course, my semester grade? You know, no biggie. We got this. She goes off to work. I'm sitting there. The baby cries. <laughs> so I go up and I get the baby. I bring her down. I put the bottle on. The, well, we, did we have a microwave? I don't think we had a microwave yet. Uh, you know, so I turned the, the, the stove on, put the bottle in the water. I tested it on my wrist. You know, I'm holding the baby. I put the bottle up. She won't take it. She won't take it. She just cries. I do the gross thing. I take my finger, try to get, you know, put it in her mouth so she'll start to kind of suck on my finger, then put the bottle in her. She won't take it. For eight hours, this kid just cried. She cried. I had tried to, she cried every time I took a bottle. Like, come on, you need this. I would squirt it in her mouth. She wouldn't take it. It was horrible. By the time Charlene gets home at 3.30, I'm just like, oh. she said, honey, what's the matter? I said, she wouldn't eat. I failed. I failed as a father. I couldn't feed my child. What we discovered, it, it just inadvertently, Charlene had swapped out nipples, and so she put the other nipple on. The kid ate like she hadn't eaten all day because she hadn't. You know how much study I got done? Zip. Finals the next morning. Somebody else was watching the baby that morning because I had to go take this final. I remember sitting in Winona Lake Park with this notebook full of notes and I remember just kind of flipping through them I said God I'm not that smart I need help I don't know how this is going to go if I have to take this class again so be it I need help it happened to be the the title of the class was life in the spirit it's all about the holy spirit I remember sitting down in class. We had a blue book. For those of you new kids, the blue book was literally that. It was this little paper book, light blue on cover. And guess what was on the pages inside? Nothing. And you had to write, and you had to fill in and write. And I had a blue book exam on life in the spirit covering 40% of my grade. And I sat there, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And parts of me doesn't even remember what I wrote. And didn't even, you know, and, and 
I got done, I turned it in, and I went, well, I have to start looking at how we're going to pay for taking this class again. The day came when uh, the word comes around, hey, life and the spirit, exams are back. My My fingers were shaking as I turned the knob on my mailbox and the combination. I got a 95. God didn't give me 100 because he didn't want me to get proud. But he <laughs> I was blown away. You see, God answered my little simple prayer abundantly. Now, don't think that, oh, great, then I can just not study or pinch the baby for eight hours. No, that was a one-time deal, one time only. It was a holy moment. I realized God was there with me in that class. Dr. Warren Wiersbe, I'll say it again, we really have to be careful not to mix our greeds up with our needs. One more story. Sometimes God's answer to prayer really leaves us in that holy moment. I had a friend that used to meet with over here in the office every Friday for prayer. And uh, really developed a great, you talk about unity, and we developed a friendship that lasts to this day, that started through prayer. One day we were meeting, and he told me they were in need of a, a vehicle. Through a variety of circumstances, they had sold what had been the family car, and a friend was out of town, so they were borrowing the friend's car, but the friend was coming home tomorrow on Saturday, and they had the funds, but they hadn't yet found a vehicle that was going to meet their family needs. And uh, so we, he said, we need to pray about that today. We need to pray that, this, that I can find a vehicle today. I said, okay. So I kind of got a little pastoral. I said, tell me what. Tell me, tell me. If, if you could pick a vehicle, what would it be? And he mentioned a, kind of a late model, not brand new, but a late model Volvo that he was really keen on. I said, okay. Well, if you could choose the color, what would it be? Oh, we like white cars. Okay, all right. Ah, let's just go for it. What interior would you like? Oh, I love a red interior. It would just really set that car off. Okay. That morning is etched in my mind. I simply prayed this. God, we're your kids here. You know my friend, he's got a need. Uh, and and it kind of has to be taken care of today. And, and I know you know that. But Lord, if you would, would you provide for my friend a white Volvo with a red interior? Could you do that? We laughed as we closed up in prayer. Oh, yeah, that's great. You know, we laughed. I was chuckling through the day until 2 o'clock. Phone rings. Hey, Scott, do you want to drive me to Naperville to pick up your answer to prayer? I just committed to purchase a white Volvo with a red interior that went up for sale this morning about the time we were praying. Whoa. That's a holy moment. I still get this feeling inside of me when I think about that. I'd never prayed that specifically before. And I never anticipated God would answer that specifically. What's the point? What's the point of all this? It's not just because God answered two prayers in amazing ways. I've seen God answer thousands of little prayers. But it's from a relationship. 
Prayer is not just some lines we say by rote memory that have lost their punch. It's an expression of relationship. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see how he taught us to pray by example. We look at this passage, we have this model of prayer predicated on a deep, respectful, submissive, dependent, reciprocal, protective relationship. We can confidently and continually come to God with every need, great and small. And what we find is not always Him just fixing all of it, but changing us and preparing us so that we can understand and see how much He delights to meet our needs in His way and in His time. And I believe the more that you and I individually, the more that we as a church corporately commit to prayer, the more we will be tuned in to see the hand of God. And that's the purpose of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come to you with anything and everything. Thank you that you hear us, you know us. You know the answers before we ask. But you just love that we ask. May we submit ourselves to you and remind ourselves day in and day out, you reign in our lives. So Lord, we we lean on you, we lean into you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.